in the butt. What what in the butt? I forgot the rest of it. I think that's all of it. Is that all of it? Hello and welcome to the Sound of History podcast. My name is Nick. My name is Mika. And this is a music history podcast where I am trying trying and largely failing to teach Mika all about American music history. I haven't learned all about it, but I've heard learned small She's learned Learned so much, she forgot how to make sentences. Make sentences. I don't think I said off, but okay. You did. You said make sentences. So, we've wrapped up the 60s. This is our first episode in the 70s. Do you have a jingle for that yet? Don't. (laughs) You've got to come up with one. Musical theater needs to come up with one. Follow us on social media where you can get little hints about what I'm writing. For example, I just wrote like nine pages about Billy Joel, and I'm very excited about that episode, and it is coming in a few episodes, so stay tuned for that. Do you remember our social medias? Sound of History underscore on Twitter is the only one that matters. That's true. We have a Facebook, but we don't do anything on there, so don't bother with it. I haven't logged into Facebook in a decade. But you can give us like a... Review, rating on Spotify, iTunes, whatever you want. Let us know. Twitter's probably the best way to contact us. Let us know what we've got, what I got wrong. Yeah, Uh, I get things wrong. Yeah. Also, if you think I missed any important artists that we should talk about, let me know and maybe we'll slide them in when we can. All right. I think that's all the, the housekeeping stuff, right? Anything else I should say? You could tell them about how we're going on tour. We're not going <laughs> on tour. <laughs> yeah, we just announced our tour over on Twitter. Um, we're going to uh, Nashville and Atlanta and Memphis and I don't know what else is around us. Louisville, K- Kentucky, Charlotte. We are going nowhere. Definitely not Iowa. Not Iowa. Iowa <laughs> wants us to go there so badly. Have you guys seen the Iowa commercials? If you're Iowa, I'm sorry. But like the Iowa commercial is like, we just haven't met yet, but we're so cool. Like it doesn't look bad, but like, I don't know. I have a Ferris wheel and mountains here in Tennessee. I think I'm okay. They did say they had low cost. That is quickly yes. going away. <laughs> no one wants to go there. Right. Because it's just Iowa. We are not going on tour. Don't let me collide to you. It'd be fun to do eventually, but I don't think we will ever have the listenership <laughs> to justify going on tour. We would just go and talk to each other in different rooms than we currently do it. <laughs> <laughs> We're coming to you live from our bedroom. From our Airbnb in Louisville. <laughs> oh my gosh. Okay, so that's all the housekeeping. All right. Mika is the host now. Mika is the host now. Do you know what we should ban? Jean shorts. I love my jean shorts. I put on jean shorts for the first time this summer the other day and it was awful. It's just uncomfortable. I like mine. I don't know. Your thighs are not as as jiggly as mine. My, My thighs and jean shorts is just uncomfy. Just saran wrap them first. 
<laughs> Stop from jiggling, huh? No. <laughs> that would defeat the purpose of shorts because shorts are, you know, like for warmer weather. And if you saran wrap your body, I don't know, you might die because you can't like sweat. I don't know. I don't think that's how it works. It might. Yeah. Who's science here? You or me? I don't think either of us are science. I am science. Especially not in our current state. This is just me. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. It's like you've had like triple the amount of whiskey you normally have. Which is none. Which is there still none. Because <laughs> again, science. Three times zero equals zero. Come at me again, bro. Anyway. No jean shorts. They're out. Um, you know what's in? Sweatpants. Sweatpants are still in. Sweat shorts. My little sweat shorts that I wore the other night. Okay. They were so comfy and I looked hella cute and chill. All right. We're just, you know what? The world is opening back up, but jean shorts still out. Loungewear still in. All right. That's fair. Anything else? I don't know. I like, I like, don't like the county clerk. <laughs> they took up way too much of my time today. Yeah, that's what government agencies typically do. They were like nice, but dear God, it was awful. <sighs> I'm proud of myself for doing errands. So if you did errands today, great job. That's difficult. You did it. I'm so proud of you. Our friend Jacob went for a run today. Oh my God. Way to go, Jacob. I didn't. <laughs> Good for you. That is tough. Running is gross. Did you guys know that in a pentathlon, you don't have the same three sports as a triathlon? It's a different grouping of events. And that, to me, is dumb. All right. You got anything else? Hey, Kroger, can you bring back those cups I like? Thanks. That's it. Okay, cool. Just, you know, for Kroger. If you're not Kroger, you can stop listening now. Okay, now no, that we're just Kroger. Cups. Where they go? How so cold? So good. All right, Mika no longer the host now? Mika no longer the host now. Okay. Do you want to try and give us a recap of the past few episodes? Two dumb finance boys from New York and then two other guys that were slightly more qualified tried to do a festival, did a bad job, lots of rain, lots of artists, very cool. People died, but not as many as modern day festivals. Big hit slash joke simultaneously. Okay. That was last episode. Do you yeah. know anything about the like previous couple? Because no. that does play a part in this episode. 
Ozzy Osbourne. Yeah. Teddy bears. Psychedelic what? teddy bears. Oh, Grateful Dead. Yeah. Specifically Led Zeppelin is who I'm hoping you remember a little bit about for Zed this episode. Zeppelin. Okay. <laughs> so, we've been talking about various rock music that started and flourished in the 60s. So today, I thought it'd be fitting to talk about kind of like the culmination of a lot of those styles. It's a genre called arena rock. Some people might not even... Queen! Yeah, their next episode. Yeah! We have a whole episode dedicated to Queen. Some people might not even call arena rock a genre, but I do. I feel like it's distinct enough to be its own thing. I don't understand how it's different. Well, we'll talk about it. Okay. And I think it caps off a decade or so of just like rock music growth. Like it exploded in the 60s, and I think arena rock is like the pinnacle of it. Not like in terms of artistic, but in terms of popularity. Because they filled arenas. Yep. (gasps) It was arguably the height of the more like classic rock era. So what do you know about arena rock or what would you guess about it? Queen. How so? How was Queen arena rock? They played arenas. <laughs> okay. So arena rock is just anyone who plays in arenas? I think arena rock is people who are popular enough to play big arena shows and everyone know their music. That's close. They're just mainstream rock. Okay. It's close. Not quite, but close. Arena rock is... It's exciting. It's more the music they create is made to be played in arenas because they are big enough to play arenas. So it's very like kind of more simple, more chanty, like think like Queen, We Will Rock You type music. See, but that's interesting because not a lot about Queen is um simple. Not at the beginning, but once they got big enough to play arenas, they started doing more crowd work type stuff but we'll get there arena rock is known by a number of names anthem rock stadium rock melodic rock dad rock it's kind of one of those things that you know it when you hear it but it might be hard to accurately describe historian gary donaldson described arena rock as quote big hair big voices and really big guitars end quote and big balls (laughs) that's Uh, that's a part of it Alleged. BDE. Okay. Tell me that BDE is not part of Arena Rock. Tell me right now to my face. It it is. It is. But that doesn't necessarily mean the balls are big. Same same thing. It's not. You should miss science. You should know that. That's that's my understanding of the male (laughs) genitalia. I don't know what to tell you. One's big. Normally the other one is too. (laughs) Well... Whereas rock music of the past used to be very raw and passionate, sometimes basic, as a softer kind of rock gained massive popularity, the musicians started to become overdramatic. They started to tailor their music for large crowds in arena settings. Some of the major characteristics of arena rock are a focus on choruses, mostly melodic and soaring choruses. They also heavily utilize guitar effects and electronic keyboards. They also focus on the stage shows and theatrics using fireworks, sophisticated lighting, and other theatrics like smoke shows and stuff. I'm all for fireworks and music. Yeah, if every I, single album that I could listen to had like a tailored fireworks show, oh my God. 
I feel like when we're talking about this, you should just envision the Rolling Stones concert we saw. That was so much fun. Because that's basically like arena with the fireworks. That the, like, was stage, so the awesome. And stuff. Like that's kind of what these bands were doing. Normally, these kinds of bands would come out of progressive rock, hard rock, and heavy metal genres, but they kind of made their music more commercial and radio-friendly as they got more popular. These bands had nearly constant airplay on radio and never stopped touring. Through that, these rock bands became some of the biggest musicians in the world. Like the Beatles. The Beatles is a great example of arena rock because they loved it so much. (laughs) They, 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 they did it forever. stopped before bands started playing arenas, basically. The Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin are the two like major arena rock people you, that came from that. You make me sound like I didn't know that. <laughs> I did I know that. I never know what you remember. I was joking. Because they like, stopped touring. They did. And that's like their thing, is that they stopped. I am very proud of you for remembering that. Yeah, they're a studio band. Arena rock first started to gain popularity in the mid-1970s. In the late 60s, several different sports franchises, mostly the NBA and the NHL, had large expansions, meaning several different arenas were opened to house the new teams. Not NFL? That surprises me. Doesn't it surprise you? A little bit. but Is the NFL already happening? Yeah. Uh, Maybe. I don't know. Maybe not. To that level, but the NBA and the NHL are a lot of indoor arenas, so maybe that's why bands prefer to play there. I don't know. Makes sense. Anyway, venues like Madison Square Garden, which obviously created more venues for the bands to play in. I think Madison Square Garden was already open, but it had like a major renovation and expansion. I don't know. This isn't a Madison Square Garden episode. Why not? Lots of reasons. Why? Doesn't sound fun. I think it sounds like a lot of fun to talk about construction. Yeah, that's why it doesn't sound fun. It's possible that Arena Rock saw its first birth in the Beatlemania of the mid-60s. Oh, my God. (laughs) They filled arenas with screaming fans and kind of proved the commercial viability of rock music. And then as psychedelic rock started to phase out after the Altamont concert, the rock music started to become more commercialized. I don't remember what Altamont is. It's the Rolling Stones music festival that was kind of like... people died. Yeah, it was supposed to be Woodstock West because it was in Altamont, California. They hired the Hells Angels to be security. Hells Angels stabbed a kid. Just bad choices. Still astounding. At the end of the 60s and the early 70s, large bands like the Rolling Stones and Led Zeppelin were selling out stadiums on their tours. By booking these large arenas, they could earn more in a single night than they made in a month playing medium-sized theaters. So, since they didn't have to play as frequently, the stage setups could become more involved and massive. Also, like, do you remember the Rolling Stones exhibit we saw with like all of their different stage setups and stuff? I don't remember that part. I remember mm. the guitars, and I remember um, the messy room. That's all I remember. Yeah. Like towards the end of the exhibit, they had like some of their more like famous stage setups and stuff. In the early 70s, the improvements in sound technology allowed for music to be played louder and not lessen the quality. The Rolling Stones 1969 tour is largely considered to be the birth of arena rock. Prior to this tour, the loudest thing at concerts used to be the crowd. The Stones made sure they had the newest and best in lighting and sound so they could be heard over the crowd. I'd be so pissed if I went to a show and the only thing I could hear was 
it's like what happened yep. at <laughs> Van Camino. Like yep. we could hear them, but at the same time, all I heard was a teenage girl behind me screaming into my ear the whole time. I don't know that sound quality would have fixed that. No, like it wasn't. She wasn't even singing. She was just yelling the words as loud as she could. But that's like I hate that when yeah. like you can't actually hear the artist that you came to see yeah. like but at the I same time like, like you could. don't want to stop people singing like eh, that's what you do at a concert that's why so you it make kinda, it louder yeah the guardian magazine ranked that tour at number 19 of their 50 biggest events in rock history what's number one i don't know probably beatlemania huh? or the first rock song i would assume <laughs> The director of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame said, quote, by the time the Rolling Stones played their first arena shows at the end of 69 at the new Madison Square Garden, things had changed significantly. They had been off the road for more than a year, their audience had grown up a bit, and they came back with a new vision for the band. It was a longer show with much better sound quality. In 69, you had the Stones play there, Jimi Hendrix played there, and really put the place on the map. Were you going to say something? I just, a longer show is a better show. That's true. Less time for openers, though. No. Same amount of time for openers. Less time for sleep. <laughs> Here is a clip of the Stones playing in 1969. I think I busted a button on my trousers. Hope they don't fall down. That's the exact same vibe. <laughs> Start jumping around now. I have to do it up again. I don't think this is Madison Square Garden, but it's you don't the same. Want my trousers to fall down now, do you? All right, we don't have to watch too much of that. Just a little bit of taste of it. A little bit of taste of his trousers falling down. Yep, exactly. That's all we care about. Madison Square Garden in the east and the Forum in the west quickly became the centers of the concert world, kind of like the Orpheum theaters were back in the days of vaudeville, which I don't expect you to remember. I do. You do? Yeah, a little bit. All right. Like our, like fourth ever episode was about the Orpheum circuit and those types of venues. All of the biggest acts of the day played at Madison Square Garden in the Forum. People like Elvis, Three Dog Night, Paul McCartney, the Rolling Stones, Bob Dylan, and the Jackson 5. Is that what One Night at the Forum is? I'm not expecting you to know that answer, but... I have no idea what that even is. It's a musical or a play, I'm not sure. I mean, probably. In 1969, Grand, Fru Grand Funk Railroad, who branded themselves as The People's Band, released an album. They focused on screens in their stadium shows and played a harder rock style of sound. So kind of more like arena rocky. Here is Grand Funk Railroad. I'm assuming you haven't really heard much of Grand Funk. I have not. And the only thing that my Google search came up with was Harry Styles doing a one-night show at the Forum. Okay. But I don't want no sympathy. Hair looks like he's in an absolute And I mean not in the absolute best way. You're not gonna get this reference, but he looks like Trevor Lawrence. 
the quarterback of the Jacksonville Jaguars. soaring course. All right, that's Grand Funk Railroad. A funny thing happened on the way to the forum. That's like Shakespeare, isn't it? That's like the Sondheim. F- oh, okay. I thought that was like ancient Greek type. Maybe I'm wrong. It might be. Okay. Roman right. slave. Yeah. So ancient Roman. We're not talking about the same forum. Nope. Additionally, a lot of the tours and the concerts were branded with sponsors, leading this type of music to be called corporate rock. That is interesting. <laughs> the commercialization of and the overblown nature of arena rock led to a few different genres kind of as a reaction against it. Stuff like punk and the raw, gritty, underground sound. The 70s were dominated by bands like Journey and Boston, but in the 80s, the hair metal bands started to gain traction and kind of took over the arena rock sound. At first, it was really exciting for the bands. They realized they could make money touring. It wasn't all about supporting album sales, which kind of feels backwards from what it is today yeah they could have tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of people come watch them play without being rained on but then it started to get old the doors drummer said that they all started to get tired of it after a while jim morrison of the doors said quote the bigger the room gets the bigger the audience gets and the more obvious you have to be on stage end quote Jerry Garcia, the singer of the Grateful Dead, said, quote, you really have to play to the last row, and in doing that, your music becomes cartoonish. It can't be nuanced, end quote. I think that's a pretty interesting perspective of, like, you have to play to the last row so your music can't be, like, intricate. It's just all power chords. I guess. Like, I, I don't totally see how, like, quality has to suffer you know yeah i guess i think it's probably just harder to like it's harder to play bohemian rhapsody at nissan stadium as opposed to like somewhere like the basement east where like anyone can hear the intricate stuff happening sure it's true as bands started to realize that people created bands catered to that kind of like larger sound Their music didn't need subtlety. It was all power chords and soaring melodies. They weren't particularly innovative musically. They were kind of like massive sing-alongs, but their music sounded great to large audiences. I have a hard, I like, I don't know how I feel about it. Like, oh, it's not innovative. Like, no, it's still incredibly catchy melodies. It's like lyrics that mean enough to people for them to like, really want to shout it like there are it's just a different kind of intricacy that doesn't make it innovative 
because the Beatles were doing super catchy melodies with shoutable lyrics 10 years earlier than this. So they're not like developing a new sound. They're not being innovative. They're just kind of like overemphasizing elements that have been in rock music since its inception. It's not like psychedelic rock where they were like kind of trying to experiment, do new things. Like they're just kind of like, we're going to just overemphasize these elements. I just don't know that I agree that nothing is like new with it, you know? I didn't say nothing. I said they weren't particularly innovative. Because we'll talk about, I think we talk about Boston a little bit later. And I think they were very innovative for like an arena rock band. It's just typically not as much as some of the previous genres we've talked about. Tours also got super expensive. With the top-notch lighting, sound design, and stage theatrics that had to be moved between arenas, it got really pricey for the promoters. And some bands would have elaborate decorations on stage. The Stones started using their lips and tongue logo. Queen had a signature and iconic lighting rig that went everywhere with them. So cool. By the mid-70s, ELO, Electric Light Orchestra, had a full-size spaceship that they traveled with. Dude. So this, of course, brought about a rise in ticket prices. At first, only minimally. Bon Jovi tickets were still about $8.50 a piece. Oh my God. Which would be about $40 today. That's insane still. Yeah. Like that's, that I would consider that a lot for like one of the smaller bands that we typically see. But for like, like $40 to see Harry Styles, which would kind of be an equivalent insane. of Bon Jovi. Like that's, insane. that's ridiculous. One of the Grateful Dead said that they complained about seeing the last waltz, which was the band's farewell tour. There was It was their farewell show to touring. The band was Bob Dylan's old band. We kind of talked about them at Woodstock. They were a very successful band in their own right, but they What's started the as Bob Dylan's backing band. What's the band? This, they're called The Band. Oh, okay. <laughs> they're called The Band. They're Bob Dylan's backing band that kind of like did their own thing. Were very successful in their own right. They did a farewell to touring show at the Forum. They were joined by Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell, Eric Clapton, Muddy Waters, Van Morrison, Ringo Starr, Neil Young, and others. Holy cow. The tickets cost $25. Which, Which is, is what? Like about $130 today. Which is still like so cheap for so wow. many legends of music to be playing. Tickets, and, so, and they were like the Grateful Dead band members were complaining about those ticket prices, which is like absurd now. Tickets didn't really become outrageously expensive until like the mid 90s. So that's kind of the basics of Arena Rock, what it was and what it did. And since this episode is kind of pretty short, let's briefly cover a few of the bands that made this music. We've already talked about a few of the big ones, like the Rolling Stones and the Grateful Dead and Led Zeppelin. And we'll talk about Queen in the next episode. So make sure to like check those episodes out if you want to hear more about them. It's going to be the Bohemian Rhapsody of our podcast. (laughs) Get ready. We have a special guest. We don't have a special guest. (laughs) He is the voice of... Freddie Mercury, what? we're going to <laughs> zoom him in. Who? What does that mean? 
Stay tuned to find out. Freddie Mercury mean? Remy Malik? Remy Malik? He's not the voice. He plays him in a movie. That's not the voice of Freddie Mercury. No, it's a little bit his voice. Okay. And then the, we we do have a connection to the, one of the because they blended three people's voices, right? And one of them we like are only like one circle away from. Okay. We have I a don't connection think through. They're the going to come to our show though. But yeah, that I think that's a great episode. Haven't recorded it yet, so I don't know how it'll turn out. But I really enjoyed writing it. Probably. My second favorite episode that I've enjoyed the most writing recently. Behind Besides only Billy. Billy. Yeah. Billy was my favorite. And then Queen was my second favorite that I've written in the past, like, probably five, six months. I'm pumped. I'm so excited. Okay. So one of the bigger groups that kind of came out of this genre is Boston. Do you know anything about Boston? I think I'm going Boston. <laughs> Not the city. Do you know anything about Boston, the band? No. Okay. So Tom Scholes, S-H-O-L-Z. I don't know how to... Scholes, I guess. Scholes. I don't know. He first started writing music in 1969 when he was a student at MIT. He joined a band called Freehold where he met the guitarist and drummer who would eventually be in Boston. This is the same person? Tom? Guitar guitar no, and drummer. Two, two different people. That would be cool. <laughs> Tom eventually graduated with a master's degree and started a prestigious position as an engineer with Polaroid. Nice. Tom started to notice a difference in the way the music industry worked. In the past, bands gained attention by playing live. His band that he started played the traditional circuit around Boston, but he realized that was going nowhere. So he started... Wait, it's... They named it Boston. They were in Boston. Right now they're called Freehold, but... He, I mean, he went. He was a student at MIT, the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, which is in Boston. Isn't like that where Spider Man wants to go? I think so. Nice, because it's like MIT, which is one of the most prestigious schools, is like right near Harvard, which is obviously Harvard, and they're both like in Boston. I want to go to school with Peter Parker. <laughs> okay. Good luck. So Tom decided to try a different approach than gaining attention through the live circuit. Tom used his salary from Polaroid to create a studio in his basement, and he started making tons of demos. That guy! <laughs> He'd spend hours tinkering away with the tapes to the point that some people thought he was crazy. He worked with several different musicians, but mostly with a vocalist named Brad Delp, who had a very distinct, higher-pitched voice. He has a very distinct name, too. <laughs> Delp. This constant work in his studio was a continuous search for perfection but labels continued to pass on his music. Aww. Tom said about this time, quote, I had been bumming around playing in local bands that didn't have a future. I even started a couple of bands myself, but I knew that it was going nowhere unless I started doing it myself. I quit playing with bands at that point, set up in my basement, and went to work. I played all of the instruments, and by doing that, I could finally get everything that I was imagining and hearing. Hell yeah! I was never able to do that when I tried to work with other musicians. That was the turning point. It was the old adage, if you want it done right, do it yourself. I knew that if it failed, then I would have no one to blame but myself. End quote. And it didn't. Yeah, no, it didn't. Dude, major it, props. I love people working together, yeah. and I love with when you have a vision, you just have the musical ability yeah. to get it done. That's hella impressive. 
Boston is always a band that I've known and liked, and until I wrote this episode, I had no idea it was basically just Tom, because like he w- the recordings are so intricate, like everything is so that's awesome technical. I had no idea that it was basically just him. So cool. In 1974 and 1975, Tom started working on a demo tape of six songs, including one called "More Than a Feeling." Wait. Yep. No way. <laughs> He played all of the instruments, except for the drums, which were played by a former band member of his named Jim Mazdia, and he had Brad Delp on vocals. Dope. The demo attracted the attention of some execs at Epic Records. Around this time, the drummer lost interest in playing drums, so when the group was called into audition for the record label, they were basically only a duo of Tom and Brad. They recruited a new drummer, and Barry Goodrow filled in on guitar, trying desperately to mimic the richly layered guitar sounds on Tom's recording, which is probably impossible. Right. <laughs> One guitar's live. And a guy named Fran Sheehan on bass. You just need like four different guitarists. Yeah. It's wild. The audition was a success, and they signed a deal with Epic, agreeing to release 10 albums over the next six years. That's so much. Yes, it is. Much to Tom's disappointment, and probably because of union issues, the label insisted on hiring a professional producer to take a stab at the demos. Gotcha. Even though they already sounded very great. Yeah. When Tom met with the producer, the producer agreed that the demos were spectacular and recutting them was pointless. Nice. So Tom took the remaining tracks to his home studio and worked on them while the producer worked with the rest of the band on creating some new tracks. That's fun. The producer also suggested that the band be named Boston, which stuck. So he's the one who kind of like changed it. The album released in 1976 sold 17 million copies and ranks as one of the best-selling debut albums of all time. Nice. Tom said about making this album and getting signed, quote, I think it is very hard for people to get their head around the idea that this band was actually some guys overdubbing in a basement. They like to think that a band plays together and hangs out and writes songs and gets a contract and goes into the studio and then they jam out in the studio and an album comes out of that. This was not like that at all. It was many, many years of long nights playing along with a tape deck. So the album is Tom. Yes, but I mean, it has like Brad's vocals and then the producer worked with the band to kind of like do some of the backing instrumentation, but it's basically Tom's brainchild. Like Tom did most of the producing, most of the overdubbing, overdubbing most of everything on it. Interesting. Because I was trying to, to figure out like where the band came in and I figured it was more for the live stuff. Yeah. Which is kind of how the Beach Boys became at the end. Brian Wilson was Brian Wilson would hire musicians, but he basically mm. did everything and then like the Beach Boys would come in and sing their vocal parts and then go tour the songs that Brian wrote. Anyway, here's the first single from that album called More Than a Feeling. And this is the album that you most recently bought? No. I bought one of their later albums cuz oh. they didn't have this one. And I thought I already had this one. I thought my dad had it. He looks happy. 
They were so, so good. good. <laughs> so good. That's tough. So is that... That's Brad. Brad. That's Brad singing. Tom's the one in the silvery jumpsuit playing guitar. I'm so glad my name is not Marianne. <laughs> He's so, such a good vocalist. Also, his guitar playing is insane. Right. Well, that's more than a few. Not in the middle of the guitar <laughs> solo. The whole thing's a guitar solo. <laughs> With the success of that album, they instantly went on, out on tour, opening for bands like Foghat. I think that's supposed to say, but I wrote it wrong. What so does it say? It says Fohar. Oh, Fohar. <laughs> Which I don't think Fohar. is a band. <laughs> Fohar. And Blue Oyster Cult. What? But also on their first headlining tour, playing arenas. In the midst of all that, the label demanded the next album. That's really wild that their first like headlining tour was yeah. arenas. Yeah, it was crazy. But I mean, their debut album sold 17 million copies. Like, Dude. That's insane. Tom thought it was much too soon for another album, but he went back to his home studio and pumped out another album that wasn't nearly as good. Wow, I wonder why. Yeah. Despite it not being what Tom wanted, the album dominated the charts and sold 7 million copies. It's... Well, go ahead. Oh, that's just your classic second album yeah. conundrum. It's not <laughs> going to be as good. Album, the sophomore slump. E- except for it's my favorite Walk the Moon album. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. It's my favorite Wombats album, too. <laughs> it cemented Boston as possibly the greatest rock band of the 70s. The tour for the second album took two years. They even had a 100K pipe organ built for it. Dude. They toured all over the U.S., Europe, and Japan. I mean, they'd have to pay for that organ. <laughs> yeah. After that tour, things started to break apart. No. Tom became super disillusioned with the recording industry. He said he made a lot of money for a lot of people and didn't like what they were doing with it. He and Brad both said that they didn't want to tour anymore. Tom thought about stepping away from the industry entirely. But after taking some time off, he got to work on their third album. That sounds like burnout. Yeah. When people are taking advantage of you, your (laughs) passion and your talents, and then you get burnt out, and then you don't want to do anything. Yep. Huh. But it also kind of sounds like the typical, like, this is his love, this is his passion. He's always going to work on the third album. Like, even if it went nowhere, he's going to still be playing and recording music in his basement. Yeah, like, not if he's Tom. burnt out from it all. No, like, I mean, he might not do anything with it, but I just feel like he would still be doing it because he just loves doing it. Burnout takes away the love. I guess. Around this time, he also got into a legal battle with their manager, who, according to his contract, was entitled to songwriting royalties. And that dispute... Who wrote up that contract? (laughs) Like, what? (laughs) I think you'll find that musicians aren't the best at contracts. God. This is a little teaser for the Billy Joel episode. His first contract entitled his little record label that was like an indie label that was crap to 
rights for all of his songs for his entire life. How did he get out of that one? <laughs> it took, we'll, we'll get there. <laughs> it took his next label manager threatening the old label manager <laughs> to let him out of the contract. Like physically? <laughs> he, he said that like he, because the next label manager bought the rights to his songs as a birthday present for Billy. And then he was like, it took me threatening him to get him to agree to the contract, to agree to the negotiation. So probably. Anyway, back to Boston. That legal dispute with the manager lasted well into the 90s. While they were recording the third album, the other guitarists left the band and the label sued them for not delivering an album on time. Listen, they didn't, it doesn't sound like they said that they had to have it out in certain increments. They just That's said true. 10 in six years. So I think we're about <laughs> on four years, four or five. At this I point. think that's way too early to sue. I think that you I can't so even too. start the suing process until year six, year seven. Honestly, yeah. they have six whole years. <laughs> Tom started a tech company that made musical equipment, and he vowed to spend as much time as he felt he needed to on the third album. I since love that. He didn't love the second one. And he also countersued Epic for unpaid royalties. Yeah, get him. Eventually, after a long battle, the court sided with Tom, and he was free to negotiate other deals with other labels. Yeah. The third album eventually came out eight years after the second. Nice. Unsurprisingly, Tom wrote and played the instruments on all of the songs. Brad still sang vocals, and they brought back the original drummer to play on the album, since the rest of the band had left by this point. Well, it has been eight years. <laughs> yeah, it's, that's fair for them to like want to do other stuff. The album went four times platinum, and the single Amanda hit number one. It also spawned another tour with the band selling out arenas. This is the album I bought, by the way. Oh. And here is the song Amanda with I, someone just made a random music video for it starring some attractive woman. This is not the original video. <laughs> I thought you'd still enjoy singing. This is so dumb. <laughs> Not the song, the video, to be clear. It makes me feel like I can star in a music video as well. Probably could. I just have to walk around in slow-mo. I don't think she's walking in slow-mo. I think they're filming her in slow <laughs> All you have to do is take your clothes off in slow-mo. I'd love to see you try and take your clothes off in slow-mo. <laughs> it would not be good. I'm gonna take you by surprise and make you realize Amanda. I'm gonna tell you right away That's Amanda from their third album. My aunt had this song sang to her so many times. I just know it. <laughs> Probably by my family. <laughs> Probably. I could see her dad doing that quite a bit. The next album didn't come out until 1994. 
By that time, Brad had left the band. Not the Brad! Largely ignored by MTV and radio, the album was a commercial failure. Brad returned to the band for the supporting tour and would sing on a few songs from the next album. The fourth album performed even worse than the third. Well, yeah, they didn't have Brad. Or the fifth. The fifth album performed worse than the fourth. Okay, yeah. Sorry. You know how to count? Apparently not. They tried a new label run by the former manager of Nirvana, maybe trying to get a little bit of street cred in the 90s. It didn't work. The label largely ignored the album, so Tom sued them for failure to promote it. It was seen by a lot of people as the end of Boston. On March 9th, 2007, Brad Delp was found dead in his New Hampshire home from carbon monoxide poisoning. Oh, gosh. His suicide crushed the rest of the band and the fans. A lot of people pointed the blame at Tom, saying that his authoritarian control over the group contributed to Brad's depressive state, which, of course, Tom denied. Tom, They don't have as much beef as, like, or at least as much publicized beef as everything else. Like, that... Yeah. I don't know how much ground that has to stand on. I don't know either. It's also... I feel like we've had like a renaissance of thinking about mental health recently. So in 2007, probably a lot of people didn't really understand depression like in the general public as much as we do now. Mm-hmm. So that's probably like he was feeling sad. There has to be a reason he was feeling sad. This is the reason. And it's just like he's just he had depression. There's no reason for his feeling. It's just kind of like what his brain did. He had artist brain. <laughs> So Tom continues to keep Boston alive with members coming and going whenever he wants them to. Their last album was released in 2013, but Tom said in 2017 that he was working on material for their next album. That's Boston, and I got a little bit of carried away when I was researching them, so it took longer than I thought. (laughs) So we'll only talk about one more of the big arena groups, and only briefly. Oh, I forgot that I was talking about these guys. This is fun. Okay. In the early 1970s, Paul Stanley and Gene Simmons were in a New York City-based band that recorded one album for Epic Records that was never released. Do you know who we're talking about? Maybe. In 1972, feeling that a new direction was needed, Paul and Gene left that band and formed a new one. They saw an ad in the newspaper from a drummer named Peter Chris. The two heard him play and sing at a nightclub and knew that they wanted him in the band. Later, after an audition, they added Ace Freely on guitar. Peter Chris mentioned that he had once been in a band called Lips, which inspired Paul Stanley to come up with the name Kiss. It's a lip, it's a lip, it's a lip, 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 it's a 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 lip, 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 lip. It's a kiss. At first, Peter thought that the name was too feminine, but it stuck. They played their first show as Kiss in 1973 for an audience of fewer than 10 people. Wow. Yeah. Almost from the very beginning, they started to wear makeup and perform as characters. Their iconic looks started to take shape after a few months from their first show. That's honestly very impressive that it was that early and it wasn't like gimmicky. So I'm guessing you know know Kiss. I haven't asked you but i'm assuming you know who they are no i've never heard of them actually (laughs) i don't i don't know who you know honestly (laughs) 
<laughs> I know Kiss. Okay, I assumed you did. After getting a new manager, they became the first band signed to a brand new label called Casablanca in 1973. After that, their output became nothing short of prolific. Their first album, released in 1974, peaked at number 87 on the charts. Huh. Over the next 14 months, they released three more albums in 14 Holy months. Holy cow. <laughs> and toured constantly. Created from those live performances, their album in 1975, called Alive, with an exclamation point, cemented them as rock superstars. It climbed into the top 10, and the single Rock and Roll All Night hit number 12. Do you want to hear that song? I'm already hearing it in my head. <laughs> I feel like this is typical arena rock style. Like, it's driving rhythm, power chords, soaring, those easy to channel onto. I thought it was Venom. If anyone comes over to our home at nighttime, you'll hear maybe four or five renditions of this by Nicholas. It's one of the two songs that is constantly in my head at any point of the day. <laughs> it's this and Hey Jude are like at any point <laughs> stuck in my head. All right, that's rock and roll all night. Do you want to give us a taste of your I do version? Not, not even a little bit. Are you sure? Yes. Please. Nope. Please. The next album, Destroyer, <laughs> became their first platinum album, and it launched Kiss Mania. Soon, not the same ring as Beatlemania, may no. I just say? But same principles. But yeah, Beatlemania sounds way cooler. Beatlemania sounds awesome. Kiss Mania sounds like <laughs> sexual assault. Yeah. <laughs> Soon, the merch exploded. Lunchboxes, pinball machines, basically anything that they could put their faces on had their faces on. Which is like, yeah, do it. What if it's gonna make you money? I don't, who cares? Like, if people are gonna buy it, buy it. I don't care. Get that money. In 1977, a poll declared them the most popular band in America. A poll? Yeah, I don't know. Was who it did like BuzzFeed? Like, no, it was them. They just asked their fans after a concert yeah. to just raise their hand if they think they're the most popular band. What's the What's the sample size? <laughs> just seven. Just they'd ask their parents. Oh my gosh. They were never seen in public without their makeup, which added to kind of like the mystique and the character of them. Or were they seen in public without their makeup and just no one knew? Yeah, I mean, they had to have been. But like any time they were Kiss, they had their makeup on. But the popularity was tested in 1978 when all four members released solo albums on the exact same day. Gene Simmons' album performed the best, reaching number 22 on the charts, though all of them broke the top 50, which I feel is like wild. this was like a bet. 
Yeah, probably. This was absolutely like a dumb bet. That they're like, no, we're going to do it. And then like later they're like, I don't know. I really don't want to work on mine. And, and like everyone else is like, no, we're doing it because I'm going to win. I'm better than you. And then they're like, no, you're not. And then they did this. <laughs> probably. Yeah. That's what happened. It's also probably a lot of like testing the ego. Like we can all release solo albums on the same day and still they're all going to like chart, which they did. In 1979, they released another platinum album, but it would be the last with the classic lineup. Peter Chris left the band in 1980 and was replaced by a session drummer. For a while, tensions between him and the band were stressed. His drumming, oh, between Peter and the band were stressed. His drumming had deteriorated, and sometimes he'd just kind of like stop playing during the concerts. Is he okay? Probably not, no. I feel like he's not okay. The first album without him didn't even go platinum. The next album, recorded with Peter's full-time replacement, didn't even go gold. During the recording of that last album, called Songs from the Elder, which was a bizarre concept album, Ace Freely became increasingly frustrated with the direction of the band. He recorded his parts from home, and he didn't perform with the group during the few times that they promoted it. Original work from home. Yeah. He would leave the band in 1982. The next album, Creatures of the Night, was their heaviest album in a while, and it did a little better than the previous, but nowhere near their peak. Ace Frehley's replacement was a guitarist known as Vincent Cusano, but he had to go by a stage name, Vinnie Vincent, because the other guys thought his real name was too ethnic. Um... <laughs> yep. He was Middle Eastern, I think. I don't know his ethnicity, but... Vinny never clicked with the band. I wonder what? why. What? <laughs> why? And he was fired soon after. But they continued to use him periodically when they couldn't find another guitarist or songwriter. Oh, you're worth more than that, Vinny. The band sensed it was time for a change. So in September of 1983, during an appearance on MTV to promote their next album... They appeared without makeup and costume for the first time. Whoa. The ploy worked, and the album sold incredibly well, becoming their first platinum album in years. Did the album, like, work along with that, like, no makeup vibe? Like, what? I think did, it was, was just there the any connection? That's interesting. Yeah, I think it was just like, oh, they're not in their makeup. It's like the same kind of music they had been playing. Here is one of their first performances without makeup in 1983. They're playing Detroit Rock City. I wanted to show the MTV video of them appearing without makeup, but it was so boring. It was so stupid. Terrible. 
Alright, that's their show without makeup. Over the next years, they had several lineup changes, several albums, many concerts, and even a book. The only constant members were Gene Simmons and Paul Stanley, the two who started the band way back when. In 1995, for a performance on MTV's Unplugged, Peter Chris and Ace Frehley rejoined the band for a few songs toward the end, which set off months of speculation on whether or not the classic lineup was fully reuniting. Here they are at that Unplugged, playing one of their more popular songs called Beth. Wow. We look so different. Yeah, I mean, this is 30 years after they started, 20 years after they started. Unless you want to sing. But the hair. Yeah. you want to sing this one. Complete, like it looks, he looks. This, this is the sensitive stuff. One, two. crazy that we're now getting to MTV performances on this podcast. Yeah. While the group continued on as the other lineup without the originals, plans were in the works for a full reunion. The result was an overly dramatic event. At the Grammys, Tupac announced them with this intro, quote, you know how the Grammys used to be, all straight-looking folks with suits, everybody looking tired, no surprises. We tired of that. We need something different, something new. We need to shock the people. So let's shock the people. After he said that, the original lineup took the stage, complete in their old makeup and costumes. It was very weird. I watched the video. It was very weird looking. Seeing like Kiss and all of their basically old men at this point just standing with Tupac and their like makeup. And huh, no, we got to pull this up. <laughs> I need to see this. It was weird. I was hoping they would perform, but they did not perform. They just stood there. In their getup? Yep. With Tupac? Yep. What on earth? Hey, if you want to know more about Tupac, you can listen to Sound of Conspiracies if you haven't done that yet. That's a fun time. What's up? What's up? What's up? California love. How y'all like this uh, Versace? He actually looks phenomenal. Swap meet was closed, so... You know, I go all out for the Grammys. (laughs) Y'all down with this? We're going to try to liven it up. You know how the Grammys used to be, y'all? Straight-looking folks with suits, everybody looking tired, no surprises. We tired of that. We need something different, something new. We need to shock the people. So let's shock the people. (laughs) 
<laughs> this is weird. Now, right? It's just so awkward. These my homeboys. And I see just about everything now. That was it. Okay. <laughs> they were so much taller than him. Are they all in platform heels? Yes. After that, they announced a tour with the original lineup, and the first 40,000 ticket show sold out in minutes. The tour became one of their biggest of all time. They released one album as the original lineup, but the involvement of the two returning members was really minimal. By 2001, Chris had left the band again when they couldn't agree on what to pay him. By 2002, Ace Freely was out of contract and left the band again. The, the band continued on for various different albums, concerts, merchandise opportunities, and lineup changes, and as of now, they are still technically a group, though Paul Stanley has said that he thinks they will be done by 2023, with their last show taking place in New York City. Interesting. All right, well, that's... That's that, weird that the last Kiss show hasn't happened. Yeah, that is really weird. I thought they had ended in the 90s. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't know they were still doing stuff. Mm-hmm. All right, I well, guess the last Rolling Stones show hasn't happened yet either. But I feel like I hear more about them than I do Kiss. Yeah. That's Arena Rock. Anything you want to add on? We will, we will rock you. Okay. So next episode, whenever we get around to doing that, we'll be on Queen. Yee. That'll be a fun one. And then Yee. we do Soft Rock. I like that. I like that sound. Soft Rock is was very very tough for me to come up with one artist to talk about so I settled on Elton John that's a good place to settle so he would do we do soft rock then Elton John then the bonus episode on Billy Joel nice so that's what's coming up I'm excited that's all I have written so I can't tease more than that so join us whenever we get around to doing that follow us on Twitter and we'll mm -hmm. we'll tell you when an episode's coming up generally mm -hmm. And we will also be releasing um, quotes won't. from our book that is under contract. <laughs> um, you should be expecting that. I think the beginning of next year, maybe like February, March, need to be like putting the finishing touches on it. It's a really long process. But Why is this your thing? Why is your <laughs> thing this episode to just lie to the people? <laughs> what is this joke? That you I don't know. <laughs> But you got to do it in threes. It has to have the right rhythm. I needed something else to lie about. <laughs> <laughs> we have no book. We have no tour. We have no Freddie Mercury impersonator. <laughs> we, we, have, we have none of that coming up. Yet. <laughs> if you follow us on social media, you'll be the first to know. <laughs> Or apparently, if you just make up something, <laughs> you'll be the first to know, because that's what Mika's doing. Okay. Anything Good else? Bye. <laughs>